Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what got cut in the errata, or the re-release, or whatever, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss Chapter 5, the Appendices Chapter of Isirion's Enchiridion of the West Marches. This book is by Dom Liotti and Sam Sorensen, uh, and we have been enjoying it enormously so far. In this, our ninth episode on this book, and now we're getting into the back matter, which is still half the book. So, almost as many appendices as you know, Professor Tolkien. Yeah, it go- it goes from page seventy-two to page one twenty-four and has nine appendices. Although, uh. Eight of them have gameable material, and one of them is the appreciative page uh, to the Kickstarter backers, listing all of the people who donated to uh, to get this product to light. So that's good. Um, so basically, eight appendices in you know fifty pages. So it's like one of them's got to be a gallbladder, right? Yeah, yeah, gallbladder, liver, small intestine, you know, whatever, whatever, however you need to connect your body parts. Yeah, it's fine. So uh, appendix number one, I feel like we're starting over the chapter count, but it's all one chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. Appendix number one is player options. Um, and uh, some of these are going to be, hey, you know, this is a standard player thing that doesn't really suit the West Marges at all and sort of break stuff. Mm-hmm. And others are going to be new feats because, I mean, have you bought a book if there aren't new feats in it? Right. So, uh, which of course I'm being facetious in fifth edition, <laughs> but in third and fourth edition, I am not being facetious at all. Right. Right. But so, like, so the beginning of this is basically uh, pointing out that if you're going to run a West Marches campaign, your players can't really choose typical backgrounds, right? Like, the, there's got to be some sort of wiggle room there because, you know, there has to be some reason for the PCs to leave the relative comfort and relatively known area that is the rest of the empire and come out to this frontier region known as the West Marches. And so they start by giving us a table that could possibly, we could give to the players or have the players roll on that that gives them some options for the motivation for why they are in the West Marches. Because, you know, Honestly, the point here is, I mean, what what they're saying is, look, this is a dangerous, deadly place. Even hardy adventurers are not going to stay in the most dangerous, deadly place without some sort of reason. And that's what this table gives us. So that's the very start of the first appendix. Yep. Um, And this is a D20 table. It's perfectly wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, this has a lot in common with um, the, the the secrets in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. There's mm-hmm. a lot in common with the sort of uh, dark secrets of Descendant Avernus. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, things yeah. to just connect the PCs to the campaign to make them, I don't know, Less genericized. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, I like it. It's fine. It's perfectly serviceable. 
so because NPCs don't have agendas for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and, and like it's not personal to the PCs for the most part in the West Marches, mm-hmm. um, most of this won't come up directly except in interactions between the PCs. Right. Right. But that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Uh, and, and, you know, I could see a, a DM uh, creating, you know, this is a good example, example, right? I could see a DM creating their own table for their own West marches that they develop. Right. Uh, and therefore you, you actually could add in, you know, something. The thing is that, you got to be careful about adding in something where the person is in the West marches because they heard about that, you know, plus five dragon slaying sword that their grandfather supposedly once right. wielded. Right. Because remember, they're not supposed to have that as a sort of focal quest. Right. Uh, that sounds a lot like uh, a classic uh, LARP character history mm-hmm. <laughs> right. because man, the number of players who tried to essentially pressure uh, plot committees into putting them on the path of a cool magic weapon that way <laughs> right, is right legendary yeah i mean and it, and it's you know yeah i'm i'm sure i'm sure it's extremely common uh in tabletop games as well right yep so then it moves on and it's uh it and remember so th- this section isn't examples this is really just player options so it's trying to give you i mean it is examples but it's trying to give you some ones that you could use no matter what your west marches is like you, your own personal West marches, but it also is actually serving as examples to show you how you could do something. You could tweak these, change them slightly, add a different one or whatever. Um, it, 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 then it goes to feats after it talks about the, uh, the reasons for, for being in the West marches. Now it's talking about feats that you have. And the thing I like about these feats, I'm not a huge fan of feats. I'm not sure if you know this, but, um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of feats, but, uh, the thing I like about this is it does actually use the things that it presented to us as integral parts of the West Marches campaign in previous chapters, right? In the world building chapter, when it talks about environments and weather and all that stuff, it uses those things when it talks about foraging and, you know, drinking bad water and all that stuff. It uses all that stuff in here and it creates a, a set of feats that really can key in to those types of challenges um but it does say i'll say up front that i think thick skin is not a good idea it should just not be here but that's all right yeah i mean you know there are a couple that i probably would just choose not to use what i was going to say is the majority of these don't completely get rid of the challenge right? They right. still will retain the challenging port. So it doesn't create the ranger problem, right? You know, the ranger problem we always talk about, dear audience, mm-hmm. yeah. that, you know, the ranger skills make it so that suddenly you don't even have to worry about the things that the ranger is really good at because they just kind of automatically succeed. And so you take that spotlight time away from that player because, well, they, okay, you succeeded. That's one dice roll and five seconds at the table, and now we're moving on. So they didn't even really get to explore how great that is that that PC is doing that in the game, right? And that's what I was afraid of with these. And then I read them, and the majority of them are okay. They're, they're not doing that. They don't create a ranger problem. I do agree thick skin is like, uh, I, I probably would not use that one. Well, it, it's all the problems of cold weather gear. Right. And then also the other extreme of temperature right 
Yeah. So, like, yeah. feats like, should not provide immunity, folks. Feats right. should not provide immunity. I don't care well, how good the feat is. Well, just like I have heard the argument so many times that if the player buys his feat, it means they didn't want to engage with that kind of challenge. Right. That is not an option in the West Marches. Right. You don't get to right. pick that. Of course, you don't want to engage with that. The The thing about West Marches is that the game expects you to be risk averse right. and to engage risk anyway, because you have to. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, your whole, all of your energy is spent minimizing the risk right. because you are risk averse, but you're still facing the risk. Like that's the whole point, right? Um, and a feat that provides resistance to certain damage type and then immunity to that sort of environmental effect. Well, you just you made the, you made entire regions possibly not challenging, but only for one PC. If the other PCs don't take that same feat, now they're at a deficit. So now you run into the the problem of mismatch challenges, right? Because now you have to challenge the character who has that feat, but the challenge can't be so great that it completely decimates the characters that didn't take that feat, right? So now there's a there's a little tension there that honestly it would be unnecessary if you just just don't give just don't let your PC take that feat. It's fine. Just don't just erase it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, your mileage may vary and everybody's table is different, of course, and someone might just really think that's a great idea and it might work really well. Uh, you, you could also use it as a boon, right? Like once they've accomplished something in the West Marches with something that happened, uh, you might decide to give it to them because you have a plan for something later or you've dropped enough lore seeds that they know that there is some sort of icy fortress or some sort of fire-based fortress. And so, you know, you know, so there's ways that this could be usable. Uh, it just right. feels not that particular one is not usable out of the gate for me in my mind, but you know, whatever. Well, so yeah, it definitely calls to mind for me some of the um, temporary uh, feet boons mm-hmm. that you get in um, like Fizzbounds and the DMG. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we covered the fact that like this boon just gives you a feat as a thing. Right. Cool. Yeah. Go go on with your life. Have a great time. Well, <laughs> yeah. like you have to go cut a deal with I don't know the Yeti King to get thick skin so that you can go into the the Arctic region. I mean, that's some extremely like Legend of Zelda content, right. and right. everybody loves that. That's yeah. that's perfect for West Marches sure. to me. Absolutely, because yeah. what what I love even more, you've then got to like march every single member of the pc company who wants to go on that <laughs> right <laughs> wants to venture in that whole region through their deal with the yeti king which <laughs> at some point just becomes like a, a, a one to three die rolls of right. do you offend the yeti king mm-hmm. but still right 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 um and you know i think that um thinking about other games and how they have touched on some of this stuff. I think that uh, starting to build downtimes in the world so that like, okay, we need, we know we need to go over here and do this just as a like lock in key prereq to go do this over this thing over here. Um, treating those as downtimes that you resolve with a few dice rolls in a very, the one ring kind of way might 
uh, offer new dimensions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I really like how uh, the One Ring and Adventures in Middle Earth cover that um, as things you do once you arrive at your destination, basically. Right. Right. Yep. Anyway. Um, so moving on. Yeah. Uh, so the next page is when it starts talking about things that are in the rules that don't actually work in the West marches. So you have to discuss them with your players and get a lot of buy-in and understanding from them ahead of time, because what you don't want is a surprise surprise. This ability that you thought you had because you were a certain class doesn't work. Ha ha. That's not what they're going for. Right. Okay. What they're going for is it's laid out at the beginning. Here's the deficit that is happening and here's why that's still okay. And they do that when they address uh, the ranger and getting lost. And absolutely, they have a, a tweak that they do to the ability that uh, with how that how that ability is adjudicated at the table that makes it still relevant and still helpful, but not the end all be all of never ever getting lost in the West Marches because that's why you took that class so that you wouldn't have to deal with that part of the game. Well, again, folks. The whole point of the game is that in part. Right. And you want that to like be something you're amazing at and everyone is excited you're amazing at it, not everyone mm-hmm. forgets you're amazing at it. Right. Um, and, you know, here I, I'm just reminded that, yeah, like Tasha's Cauldron of Everything says, man, this ability interferes with the fun a lot. Let's do something else instead. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm playing a ranger and it's a Tasha's ranger and it's great. And I could have had natural explorer running like 75% of the campaign by picking forest because right. we're in Chult. Right. But <laughs> right. then this main ability would have suddenly turned off as soon as we got to the tomb of the nine gods. So thumbs down, maybe. Yeah. Right. But that's in that particular adventure in, in the West right. marches. If you have the ability to never, ever get lost, yeah, it's it's uh, not good. It's not it's not okay. Right. So here's here's uh here, just for the audience's sake, here's what the book suggests you replace that with. So that ranger's ability to never get lost. Here's what it gets replaced with. When you are in the wilderness, you can at any time retrace your steps exactly the way you came until you return to the town. Once you return to the town, this ability resets. And so basically what it means is you can always get home. So if you get lost, you're not trapped out there lost with no way to get home. You can always get home, but it doesn't mean you won't get lost while you're trying to find your way to somewhere else. And because it resets in town, it means that you can't leave town and go directly back to where you were yesterday to find that exact spot. Because remember, that's one of those things about the West Marches is even if you were just there yesterday, you can't just look at the map and say, I want to go back to the cavern entrance that we were at yesterday because you can't do that. It's part of the game setup that you can't do that. You have to still take the travel and take the chance of getting lost. And so this takes care of that pretty handily and it doesn't completely kill the ability. It still makes it useful, but it also makes it playable in this type of campaign. So for me personally, I think they did a decent job of, of not, of not just completely saying, cause you know, they could have just said, well, you know, tell the ranger that that's not an active ability in this game. It just yeah. doesn't, ha- it's just not there. It, it, yeah. That's, that's not great. 
Right. And that like, would the ranger doesn't actually need their knees cut out from under them mm-hmm. that right. way. Exactly. Um, so the next up we we're talking about uh, background features mm-hmm. um, and it, they're basically saying uh, boy a lot of these background features are about engaging with society mm-hmm. you're not going to do that here right there is no society to engage with right like yeah. if you find a society you're not on friendly terms with it for the most right. part right. if you are on friendly terms with it you didn't need your background feature right? because it's town. It's a, and it's it's a sanctuary it's or, or yeah. something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. Um, and here they do recommend just ignoring, things. ignoring them completely. Yeah. <laughs> like, and in fairness, man, if someone is playing a, a noble and tries to bring their mm-hmm. three NPC retinue along with them. Right. Yeah. Forget it. No. Yeah. That's, that no. is a care seat. And this is where, here that that is a character that does not belong in right that's where the whole beginning part comes in about why are you here now if you're a noble who is fleeing because you're a member of a of a royal family or something and your whole family was killed so that somebody else a despot could come and take over and they all they think you're dead but you're fleeing until you can get stronger and better and maybe then go back to civilization or they are they know you're alive and they're looking for you and so you figured if you went to the biggest you know the ends of the world they're not going to chase you there at least for a while then that's fine then you can have the noble background but it's but because you're hiding it it's not going to have any benefits for you right i totally expect to have at least one noble who's like um yeah i'm a noble and this retinue guy here his name is sancho panza you Mm -hmm. probably figured this out by now Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like right yeah no that fits (laughs) but you shouldn't be allowed to do it right right (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. Like, so their point is, mu- you have must- any windmills in the West Marches? <laughs> Would you like to tilt it then? Giants, yeah. maybe. <laughs> um, but you know, like their point is that the a lot of backgrounds, maybe not the majority of, maybe the majority of, I'm not sure. I didn't count, but most of the backgrounds are going to have some portion of them that just does not fit with the West Marches game. So you need to inform your players that. You know, they're just not going to, you know, like uh, if the if the background feature says when you come into a new city and there is a temple, you can come to the temple and you get immediate respect because of your position with the, you know, as a cleric of Hootie Hoo. And, you, you know, you're 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 going to be given, you know, free room and board and possibly healing services like, no, that's not going to happen in the West Marches. Right. It's just not. So even if that is a part of the background that you have some sort of authoritative you know cachet with in most cities with the temple you know or with the church and with the employees therein or other acolytes or paladins if there's an order of paladins like yes that's great in a kingdom-based game or in a game that has a sort of more familiar maybe feudal style of workings or or even if they're all free cities and it's not kingdoms and but they still have churches and you know temples and whatnot. Yes, that will work there. Here, you don't have those things. You have the town, and we already know the town is a safe place. So those benefits that you're getting from the features of the of many of these backgrounds, those those features are already happening in the town because the town is your safe place. But outside the town, they don't exist. 
right? They, they don't, they don't kick in because they just, they don't apply in this area. And uh, if you don't, if you don't, if everybody's not clear on that, you might have some unhappy players. Yeah. I mean, if you've gotten all the way to background features and they haven't understood the fundamentals of West marches, that's, that's a problem just straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next is Epic Boons, uh, which is just use Epic Boons. They're cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Like it's super graphs to say, right. remember Epic Boons from the DMG? Did you read that section? Right. We did. We think it's pretty good. <laughs> right. And of course it says, you know, uh, as with anything in the West Marches, it should not be set up where the players are expecting to get an Epic Boon. Like it should be an unexpected reward for something. Uh, and therefore it makes it special and unique and, you know, whatever. Don't just ha- have a habit of, oh, well, every whatever time period or every whatever mission or every whatever that you give an epic boon because then they start to expect it. And that's definitely, you know, part of the whole thing of the West Marches is the majority of things that are happening there are unexpected. Like that's the whole point, yeah. right? Or that's 75% of the point of the West Marches is that it's so randomized that it's unexpected. The things happening are unexpected. So, you can't just have something that's a regular occurrence because that would mean it's expected and predictable. And the West marches is meant to not be that. Yeah. I mean, the West marches is meant to be learned. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that regular occurrences are things that you learn. Like it, sure. There's a certain point at which if things are too random there's no point in even learning because like, it's not going to come up again. Right, right, right. I guess what I mean is when you first go into a region, it's unexpected because you don't, you know, you might know rumors or lore, but you have not experienced that region. Sure. Right. Sure. You learn through your experiences, but the many of those are unexpected, right. At first, Mm -hmm. at least. And then you learn, but I guess what I'm saying is between the DM and the players, if you keep doing something with a particular pattern, then it becomes expected even despite however the game is set up, right? If if every time you get home, I give you an epic boon, or every time you defeat a, oh, yeah, a, a no, mini no. boss, much, I give you an epic much. boon, then it's then it becomes expected. And then when it doesn't happen, oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I right, agree then there's that a problem. 100%. Yeah, that that's really what I'm trying to say. And but yeah, that's yeah. that idea is supported by the whole of the West Marches being, at least at first, a relatively unknown entity. Each of the regions is an unknown entity, other than what you can see far off miles away, what you hear in rumors and the little bits of lore that you learn as you're playing through it. Right. But there's no point where you just get a parcel of information that says, if you go to that fortress and you defeat that thing, you'll get an Epic boon. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I will, I'll definitely say I have very strong feelings about concepts of player entitlement. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's not a game mode that is more opposed to a concept of player entitlement than the West marches. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, I agree with that. The, uh, there was a, a fourth edition, like um, mode of play that I, the name is escaping me right now. I'm terrible at podcasting. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that was intended to be like ultra hard, high challenge mm. um, content. And um, 
You mean those lair assaults? Was it that it was, around that particular concept? Uh, that that wasn't the name of it. it. It's not. It's not crucial. Um, I'll find it one of these days. Maybe we'll even yeah. talk about it. That'd be kind of cool. Because there it was, was like, it was GSL was content. The, the death right? match. Yeah, the death match. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Um, it was but, called Fourth Core, right? It was. Thank like you. The, that's the, what the I'm looking core. for. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. one. That's the yeah. death match. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason I'm bringing all that up. Did you know they have is, a fifth, a fifth core? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm not unintrigued. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is just even that mode of play, you might be entitled to a little bit more like than you are in West Marches from, mm-hmm. from an entitled point of view. Like, this is what you're guaranteed. I mean, in the West Marches, what are you guaranteed? The shirt mm-hmm. in your back? No. Get lost, kid. Right. <laughs> Did you fight for it? And, and I'm exaggerating. I hope that's right. clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> like, this is not, like, be a jerk DM o'clock, right? Um, it, it's just establish stakes and follow through. Establish mm-hmm. stakes and follow through. Every time, like, be cold about it. Mm-hmm. Not cruel, but cold. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I can agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it stakes are often established by the dice, and so mm-hmm. like right. your coldness is just the dice said your your gear's gone. Sorry, mate. Like, yeah, my hands are tied. Yeah, I mean. I guess to me, cold is is kind of the wrong word because it implies meanness almost. Like you, yeah, you said, yeah. not cruel, but cold, so. so but like I, I just mean like yeah. you're an impartial referee. Right. You have no emotional stake mm-hmm. in what happens. Right. Which like is absolutely an act of double think. Right. Like I think you're actually doing D and D wrong if you aren't rooting for the players on some deep level. Mm-hmm. If you are trying to kill them, you're doing D&D wrong. In all the different things where we say there's no wrong way to DM, no, that's actually one because you are divorcing yourself from the priority of um, engaging and entertaining. Like you're there to be part of the audience. Don't take yourself out of that. And, uh, you know, you need to both want to see them uh, succeed and want to see them be challenged at the same time. And sometimes they'll be challenged too much and some or all of them will die, but make it exciting. (laughs) Right. My point is just, you have to be a fan of the player, you have to be a fan of the PCs. You can't let that one go. That that's indispensable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I guess that's why the word "cold" strikes me as indifferent. Right? Cold means indifferent, and that's not what's being said. What's being said is you have agreed, and everybody at the table has agreed to let the dice fall where they may. So if the dice say, "Hey, buddy, sorry, you lost your equipment," well, you lost your equipment. You're not 
indifferent about that. You you want them to succeed, but what you want is for them to sort of step up to the plate and figure out how to resolve their the next set of problems now with their loss of equipment, right? And you were rooting for them still. You're not cold yeah. and indifferent to their plight. You're you are having to balance being a referee who does not fudge because that those are the strictures of the setup, right? You can't yeah. fudge. The dice are falling where they may. And that means you have to accept the results as well as they do. That doesn't mean well, you can't still, you know, root for them internally. Right. So think of it like this. You know, you are the the creative team behind um, a, a big MCU film, right? Mm-hmm. And you know that in this movie, um, spoilers, uh, you're going to destroy Mjolnir. Mjolnir is going to get destroyed. Mm-hmm. You're not doing it because you don't like Thor. Right. You're doing it because you think Thor is amazing and you want to say something about Thor without Mjolnir that is going to result in Thor being amazing. You're also, uh, more spoilers, but I mean, I don't know how to help you if this spoiler bothers you. Uh, well, how old is the movie? Uh, I'm talking about, uh, you know, Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, uh, sorry, you know, going back as far as uh, uh, Thor Ragnarok. So it, it right, isn't the I movies mean, are old. I mean, it's that if you care, you've seen them by now. Right. But but that's what I'm saying, though. How old are they, though? Uh, 2018, 2019. Okay. So it's been three years minimum. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Fine. Uh, that's not really a spoiler then. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to talk about anything that recently came out. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, my, my point is, yeah, they, they destroy Mjolnir, not because they hate Thor right. or aren't cheering for him, but because a setback makes him cooler when he succeeds. Right. And also because they wanted that absolutely killer shot of uh, uh, Captain America wielding Mjolnir while Thor wields uh, uh, Stormbreaker. And yeah, it, it slaps. I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> if your theater, theater didn't cheer, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's it's just how it was, man. That was, a, that was an event. Yeah. A little off topic, but... Um, <laughs> That's right. But, but, the point, but, useful, but, but it is a point, right? Right. Useful to talk about, like... Even character-defining gear can be lost for like, amazing narrative or technical reasons. Right. It's not going to like that. That one item is gone, but something else is going to come along. Right. You, you kind of need to trust in that, and the West Marches is going to make that happen more organically and without intent. But you're going to be able to figure something out, like. Right. Be clever. Well, Maybe it, you switched to using a quarter staff because you found a stick in the woods for a while. Mm-hmm, I don't know right. what to tell you. Well, in the in the you know, there's a sort of an old thing, right? Everybody loves an underdog, but if you yeah. always go out with the best equipment, 100% of all the equipment that you ever need, 100% of all the skills and abilities and hit points and everything that you ever need, you're always going to dominate everything. And if you're never the underdog, you never had to overcome any challenges. Well, what have you actually? proved right like you it's 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 not that that can't be fun it is, of course it is fun to kick right it's totally fun to kick every once in a while yeah but if there's no downbeat if there's no point where 
the challenge seems overwhelming or too big or troublesome or or hard to figure out how to solve it at some point in time, then solving it has no no intrinsic reward, right? It might have the loot reward, it might have whatever, but there is an intrinsic reward that comes from overcoming challenges that were imposed upon you and then you overcame them for, for through whatever means, not just because you had the best equipment and the best whatever. Like, yes, those things are important sometimes, but it's overcoming the challenge when you lost that thing that you used to use all the time, and yet you still succeeded. That's when you know that you are the one succeeded. It's not because you had that thing. That thing was just a tool, and you are the one that succeeded. But to show yep. that, you have to lose that thing occasionally. Yep. And I mean, it's it's a classic of all adventure fiction. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, um, I mean, the next section is conveniently modified equipment uh, <laughs> right. that that is talking about um, a little more detail on some of those normally forgettable equipment items. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing, um, you know, West Marches, the backpacking. Um, <laughs> then you will want to go to a local REI and pick up many useful goods. <laughs> like the degree to which this is just my childhood as part of <laughs> my Explorer post is mm -hmm. very real. <laughs> and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> well, um, it's it's an attempt to really hit home that idea that is presented in, in one of the previous chapters of you know, this stuff is often overlooked nowadays. People just uh, purchase equipment very quickly. Oh, I've got the Explorer's Pack. Boom, I've got it. I'm, I'm done. I don't have to think about what's in it, right? Uh, but remember, that all works until it doesn't, right? Until the one time when something happened, right? As you said, we were crossing the river trying to get back to our camp, and my pack floated down the river, and we couldn't save it. It was enough for us to save each other, right? So now we're short a pack. So now one or two of the PCs don't have a tent or you have reduced rations or whatever. Like that might be only a one-time occurrence every 20 sessions, right? Yep. That that becomes suddenly important, but it is certainly important. And this is just trying to hit that home and talk about those types of items in specifics. Yeah. When I first read uh, Dungeon World and saw how some of the moves included losing gear as a consequence mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh, rolling a six minus or a seven to nine. Um, it definitely made me wish that there were a standard and approachable, you lose this useful piece of gear mechanism right. in D&D. &D. Um, I kind of understand why there isn't, but a, a lot of the time I just sort of want uh, to be able to say, okay, you failed that role. Mm -hmm. What happens is you you succeed but lose the gear, and that's right. fairly supported in the DMG. But um, I don't think it's going to see uptake by the user base until it shows up in some published adventures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think it is really, really useful, just phenomenally useful for the West Marches, and it does need to be written into the rules in a visible way because the DM needs to be so impartial and right, right. it feels like such a screw job if mm -hmm. it isn't written into the rules that the PCs yeah. have 
explicitly accepted. Right. So Castles and Crusades has this interesting mechanic called equipment wastage. And it's really just about the idea of, you know, you're adventurers and you're fighting all of these creatures and going into these very dangerous areas. And, you know, it's sort of reasonable to expect that uh, if you're using a shield uh, to protect yourself, that shield is getting beat on. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're fighting creatures with your sword, that sword is taking some punishment. Right. And your armor, if you if you were, you know, spit on by an acid spitting creature, well, your armor now has acid on it. You know, what what is that effect of that? Um, And uh, it has a system that has uh, some intricacy or you can just play it very sort of less complex. and uh, and 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 so that that exists. Uh, but then, if you if you ever listen to Stephen Chenault, the um, the the owner of the company that publishes uh, Castle and Crusades, one of the things that he said that he does is because someone asked him one time, you know, Castle and Crusades is a very deadly game. What do you do to make sure that you don't just have PCs dying left and right? And he said, well, one of the things he does is. If the player is about to take a blow that would probably knock them out or, you know, put them in, uh, you know, on the other side of zero so that they could possibly be facing death, uh, he breaks their shield or breaks their Mm -hmm. sword or ruins their armor instead. Or the blow knocks them back and their, their sack slips out of its harness the way it was attached to their belt and falls down the pit. And their equipment's ruined, you know, like there's some loss that is still important, but not as important as it would have been, right? They're not, they're not going to immediately die, right? Yeah. Like, I'm really interested in just the cultural difference that represents Mm -hmm. where, um, like, I am used to the the D&D where you can kill my character, but you can't take my gear. Right. Um, and okay, that doesn't necessarily apply to a bedroll in standard D and D. Like, <laughs> right. yeah, you can have my bedroll rather than killing yeah. my character, but you get what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I am attached to this magic weapon that mm-hmm. I got. Right. No, you can't take it away and have this be okay. Right. Um, so I find that very interesting. That that would be tenable in the player community of uh, Castles and Crusades. So in terms of the wastage system, the actually as written, magic weapons have a real big resistance to that, right? So it's not mm. like, oh, I fought a, you know, a creature that has acidic blood and suddenly my magic weapon's no longer working. Like that's not going to happen. Um, but sort of normal things like typical armors and typical weapons and typical equipment is fair game. And if you get hit enough, that stuff is going to get damaged and need to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Right. Now I slightly modify the way that I use it. And uh, the way that it works is if you it, basically uh, if somebody rolls a crit, right, then you need to check to see if, you know, it broke your weapon or armor, damage your armor um, or, or any other equipment that you're carrying. And what I do is I just note it down when somebody, uh, when someone rolls a one or if a crit is rolled against a a character and I let them find out at camp. Right. So it doesn't affect them directly during combat. So I don't have a, ha ha, your sword's broken, you know, kind of moment. Right. Instead, while they're, while they're, you know, setting up camp and, you know, oiling their equipment and cleaning things and, you know, resting, 
they notice, ah, crap, you know, my sword hilt has a little hairline fracture that's starting. And so yeah. they know they need to do something to repair that rather than just ignore it until, you know, and then there's a chance every combat after that, if they don't do anything, they can choose, of course, to not do anything. But every combat after that, now there's a chance that thing is going to break, but at least they know. Yeah. right? Yeah. Like getting marked with this thing is in danger. Mm-hmm. It's right. good. Right. Uh, I'm going to include a line here that will work for an extremely small number of our listeners, <laughs> but the number of our listeners who do understand they better not be driving their car because they're going to laugh. That line is item degradation is why Lee Hemmick left fallen earth. <laughs> Thank you. We can move on. <laughs> All right. That, that is a deep in joke in my friend's group. Thank you, everyone. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and move on. So the, the sidebar on this page is called the beaten path. And basically, um, it's just trying to it's it's trying to give more explanation about taking that that ability to not get lost away from the ranger, uh, and it just really makes the case for that. So, yep. um, you know, I think so, we have made the case for it. Also, I, I think we've made the case for it. Yeah, so we can move on from that. Um, the next page is about progressing and going through the character tiers and how you get experience points. Um, and they provide a, a sort of um, mission-based experience setup, um, a discovery experience setup. I mean, it's it's fine. Uh, yeah. It's I mean, good for them I, to have something. I would be shocked if they didn't have something like this in here. Yeah. I, I, I do think this is useful. Um, like in my campaign that steals some ideas from less marches but doesn't, sort of go all the way mm-hmm. um xp is very arbitrary it's numerical mm-hmm. but i am making up a number of based on what feels good to right. me mm-hmm. uh i think that for the full west marches experience you do want it to be a little more um sort of results based like right uh, yeah. a, a little more calculated mm-hmm. and this discovery experience is pretty strong actually right it's and- pretty good just to be clear uh, for the audience, uh, one of the things that this book says is you should definitely be using XP. Uh, you should not be using milestone. In other words, you should not yeah. be using milestone pro- pro- uh, progression. You should be using XP because uh, it lays the case out. But basically, it says, you know, this allows you to have expectations for the rate of progress for characters. That way, their players know. And remember, in this case, your players might have three or four different PCs that they use. And remember there yep. might be 20 players in your, you know, I mean, that's to me feels like a pipe dream, but it's, you know, based on this setup, you could have multiple different people nope, with the, multiple different characters. Right. We'll say from running Arakesh, that's completely real. Right. 20, 20 players, each of whom have uh, two or more characters. Right. Yep. That is a real case for me right now. Right. And so ha- be having the ability for each of those players for each of their characters to know exactly how many XP they have. That's, that's, easier for them to sort of get an expectation of how far I have to proceed to get to my next sort of level is a good, it's a good, you know, so much of this is there aren't a lot of expectations that you can, as we just talked about the randomness and the sort of, you know, 
learning all the lore and that's how you get to where you can recognize patterns. But there's also a, a setup of this where it's really important though for the PCs or for the players to know when their PCs are getting close to leveling. There's an expectation yep. there about what's happening. Uh, they can, you know, judge areas on that because remember there's also a thing about levels and challenge in here that is very um prescribed right because there's a procedural aspect to forming regions and giving them lore about those regions and they need to know that their skills match the challenges in a particular region and how close or far off those that you know whether it is close or whether it's a mismatch because that's how they're going to make their informed decisions so you know that's that's part of you know so they make they make a decent case for this. There's a couple other points they make, but they make a decent case for this. Um, now I say that easily because I'm a person who doesn't like the milestone experience setup. So for me, I'm like yes, score a point for using XP. But you know, I mean, I, I agree with every word of this argument. It's exactly mm -hmm. why I uh, use numerical XP at all, mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do also find an oblique charm to it but mm -hmm. uh it's because i like watching bars fill up <laughs> yeah yeah you know when the bar fills up i'm happy yeah um but uh, but their their breakdowns for discovery and role play and log keeping experience are mm -hmm. solid I, right. I like them yeah. um they're they're different ideas of things you should get role play experience for right um uh, are about making significant decisions mm -hmm. and um I think that's I think that's good. Right. I think that um, you know they they're saying the players should kind of be listening for these things. If they think they've done this, they need to make a note of it and remind you at the end of the session, which I right. think is probably smart. Right now, even more than a lot of campaigns, I think that if you have the option of making an audio recording of each West Marsh's session. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's an amazing yeah. um, piece of ephemera to have after right. the fact. Right. Um, so maybe do that. Uh, it'll certainly help the DM if you can, you know, review what you said. Right. If you had to come up right. with something on the fly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For sure. Which yeah. you're going to have to at some point. There's no way around it. Yeah. I mean, I've been recommending people record their sessions for years. I, I've been recording since recording my sessions as much as possible since uh, 2008. 2007, 2006, maybe. Uh, yeah. Because I, I had an iPod that had a little attachment thing that record that I could record with. Um, but nice. it was so nice because it would record right to the iPod and then I could listen to it later on. Um, and it's so like illuminating the ticks yeah. that you have and the tells that you have as a DM and the, the sort of patterned behavior that you exhibit and the, and the pattern behavior that your players exhibit and different ways that you, talk about things and and realizing those things not just also because there is also that benefit of oh and i said this lore off the cuff and i didn't actually write that down let me write it down now is great i mean it's so fantastic um yeah no i recommend that even if you're not like you know putting it as a podcast or letting anybody else listen or anything it's really nice to be able to i know some people are like oh i can't listen to myself you know but you're not listening to yourself. You're listening to a DM run a game for a set of players and you're looking for bits of lore and things that stand out that the players did with their PCs that they should earn extra experience for. So think of it as a listening to it to give a reward to them. Yep. Um, I mean, 
I feel like there's some some influence from um, indie games going into this list mm-hmm. and looking at the the rest of what um, Dom Liotti and Sam Sorensen have released. That's to be expected. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, this is this is good stuff. Like, centering it on you made a decision that mattered is good. Right. Um, I do really love you learn or teach lore or knowledge is believed to be true and uh, significant. Right. So like that is just paying you for uh, helping other PCs know what's going on. Right. right. That's, that's phenomenal. And it's a really important part of the West Marches style game. It's so it's, it's crucial. It's a yeah. feedback loop that's rewarding players for doing the behaviors that make the campaign better for everybody. Yep. And that's a really beautiful thing. Uh, and like, I think that, you know, I think there's some, some room here for just um, the space between role play experience and log keeping experience mm-hmm. where like your players maybe have a discord channel that is just a, a, an RP channel and they just have a scene back in town mm-hmm. where they have an in-character mission debrief. Uh, like you've got three different rosters that have all gone on different missions and they're all debriefing each other. And right. they like it amounts to earning XP between sessions, but can you really tell me that's bad? Like that's amazing. No, and especially if you pay attention to the thing that's on the next page, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but like what I really like about this right. is this sentence right here. Logs should be kept in a readily available location, such as an online directory. Logs can be referenced at any time outside of sessions, but they shouldn't be referenced in session, right? I- so you're rewarding people for writing logs and trading information. You're giving them a reward for reading the logs because now they have insight and information into the regions and locations and factions and all that, that their player would have just from living there probably. And just from being in part of that adventuring, you know, roster, but there's also an element of, okay, well, I also, they, they could possibly remember it incorrectly and that creates challenge and difficulty, right? But they still have it at their fingertips when they get back to safety. And I really like that. Uh, and I, it hurts me to think of the PCs representing this group of heroes that I'm always going to think of as mercenary company because that's what I do in my own campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, going out in the field without the annals so that you don't have a company analyst sit down and like read it during a short or long rest mm-hmm. to, to open with, you know, in those days the black company was in service to the pain God of John Delore. <laughs> right. Cause I love the black company and that's what I want. That's right. like that feeling of being croaker is so appealing <laughs> to me. Right. I mean, the thing is, the reason why they don't want you to use it in play is because, not because they don't want that effect, but because they don't want you to access lore written in the log by another PC, maybe who isn't there. Sure. Maybe. So, you know, because the people on the mission should be the PCs on the mission, right? Oh, okay. 
so, so my feeling is just um, ha have two copies of the log, uh, one that can be lost on a mission. But if you if you're willing to take the the company's annals with you and risk them, then okay, you have them because right, they're they should be in play object. Yeah, okay, but it's an in play object in a world in which, as we just talked about, it, you know, equipment goes missing all the time. Right. Right. And it, like. And having two copies. So here's the thing, right? And this is why I said that about the thing that's on the next page, because if one group takes one copy, now there's another copy. If that group is writing in that, that copy that they have, mm -hmm. that stuff isn't magically getting written in the one that's at home. No, no. And if it, it another group get, goes adventuring, like, duplicated into it, right? if, if another group goes adventuring, right? Now they've got, so you can end up with a chronological thing, but now both groups have one of the logs. Now there's not a log at the home base anymore. Mm, They're both maybe. out adventuring. I, and if they both lose them, you just lost your log. I, I, I'm just going to say, I feel like this is a little more solvable somehow than, than I, I can come up with right this second. Just, I really love the the idea of a physical log that is present at the table. Right. And yeah. that uh, the, the like player written write-ups are getting penned into. I'm, I'm staring at, uh, you know, massive blank tomes on my shelf that uh, rabbit has either <laughs> bought or in more cases made right. for me. And yes, yeah, you know I, how great it feels to have a player journal at the end of a mm -hmm. campaign. I too, I too love my journals, and I have a, a shelf of blank ones that have not been filled out yet. And in fact, for my la the last basic campaign that I ran, I created a journal from the ranger that lived in the area that was now missing that mm. the players found, mm -hmm. and it was an in-game object, and they could literally hold it in their hand and read it. And they could see spells in it that I wrote with like a silver sharpie, nice to you know in, indicate like magical writing and all that. And they could see, they could do all of these things, and it was literally an object. And I like put you know coffee on the pages, and I got them wet. I let them dry, and so it was this weathered old you know thing the ranger used to keep around in his cabin or carry with him. And they found it right. I love that. I agree with you. I love that. Right. But the thing is, that was one party without a roster like that. This the setup of West Marches is like you have this giant roster, and the PCs that are going are different PCs going on each mission, right? So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I yeah, I I think I I get what you're saying about it being solvable. I guess for me, the thing is that they're saying. They're specifically saying that you shouldn't be taking the log with you because they don't want PCs to have access to information that they just would not necessarily have readily available because that's part of the challenge, right? Because remember, they have that whole thing about, oh, well, if the players are talking about it and they say something that's incorrect, don't correct them. Just let their PC get it wrong. Sure. Right. But – I guess what I'm trying to say is your characters know how to write and they know the value of the information. 
and mm-hmm. not letting them make copies is kind of a world-breaking unrealism to me. Right? Like, your characters could hire a scribe in many versions of the town, not mm-hmm. every, obviously, but sure. many versions of the town mm-hmm. to just give you another duplicate. Like, maybe... Right, but now... That's the okay, thing. so now you're going to make 10 copies. Sure. Right? Because you might have 10 different groups that go out on different missions and you want to have one for each time a group goes out. Do you really want those 10 copies floating around the world with that information in it? Like, I mean, it, if it, if it ultimately means that something goes wrong for one of the uh, expeditionary groups and the DMs like, give me that journal, <laughs> I'm sorry. And a later expeditionary group can come along and recover it. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a nice effect for sure. That's phenomenal. So on discord. That's the moment when the DM turns that logbook channel to a private channel. <laughs> no one has access yeah. to anymore. Yeah. Well, and then when it's I, found, I do have they a, get access again. Uh, oh, <laughs> imagining running this online hurts my brain really bad. Right. Um, like it's possible. It's just uh, the length of my online sessions doesn't support this super well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, my I ability just, to focus as a GM yeah. doesn't support it super well. I mean, look, I, I for me, in-person sessions are just so much more fulfilling and satisfying. Still, yeah, to this we've day. talked about that, and uh, yeah, we're and, on the same page there. But, but I think that you know, so many people have only played online that that's just part of the game for them. Right. Like that's just, that's what it is. Well, I mean, I can, I can really only speak to running this for the gaming community that I have. Mm -hmm. And I've got, you know, several different online only gaming communities and uh, several different in-person only gaming communities. And then a tiny number of people who overlap in those groups. And Mm -hmm. that's just the thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but for me, West Marches would need to be in person because uh, the whole tempo of a session would work better for me. Mm-hmm. Right. In well, person. especially if you're going to really have in-person logs, right? If you're right. going to really have that artifact at the table, which I agree is a fantastic. I mean, my players loved it when I, oh, when I said, like, oh, you find a journal. And I literally pulled it out of my backpack. They hadn't seen it beforehand. Oh. And they were like. You did what, what Sam? Is that yeah. the real journal? And I'm like, yep. Yeah. And then I mean, they, they were like, okay, well, we were going to, we're going to read it. And I'm like, well, right now you're not camping. So are you going to stop in the middle of this where you are? And, you know, and they're like, no, we're going to, we're going to, yeah. and I'm like, okay, well, here you go. And I hand it to him and I'm like, but you can't read it yet. You know, you get, you, 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 you actually, this is the object your PC now has. What are you doing with it? You're going to carry it in your hand, <laughs> you know? Well, and so, so, yeah. so in LARPs, like very often at the end of you know, an adventure module, you'll have just a sheaf of loose papers or mm-hmm. a, you know a journal or whatever text prop, right. and just the like. There is this special kind of scurry 
that <laughs> that you do as a player when like you have all these papers you have to keep together mm-hmm. and the the all-consuming thought in your mind is getting to a safe place to sit down, spread them out, <laughs> figure your right, shit out, right. and read what you've got because uh-huh. it's the actual payoff of all the work you just did. Right, right, did. right, right. Yeah, like, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. That's such a moment in in LARPing, right? That's yeah. such a payoff, yeah. and it's why I play scholars. Right, right. <laughs> so I think the take-home message for this, folks, is um, – that they're actually saying something that might be problematic depending on how reasonable people can disagree about this, but depending on how you feel about an artifact such as this at your table or what you would do if you were playing online or whether you actually would want the PCs to have access to the log during the mission or not, you know, that's going to be a decision you will have to make. Um, and again, reasonable people can disagree on w- which decision they make. The book is suggesting they don't have access during a mission, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, scribes are not that expensive, right? Yeah, um, depending. So, so let's move on from that then. So let's move on and go to this last section, which I have referenced now like three times or mentioned three times. And what this section is, ladies and gentlemen, is a sidebar, but it's like half a page. And basically is describing a game setup in which you keep track of time in real time. So let me say that slightly differently. If a day goes by in real time, a day goes by in the setting, in the game setting. If a week goes by in real time, a week went by in the West Marches. And it describes how you adjudicate that, how you do that. Because obviously you're not going to sit down to play D&D for seven days straight because three it's going to take three days for them to get to the region where they want to go to their quest. That's not what it's talking about. What it's saying is you track that time. You do it in-game like you normally would, but you track that time so that you know those people are away from the town. Those PCs are away from the town for three days. Then they spend two days doing their mission. Then they spend three days coming back. That means that eight days have passed. And so those people for the next seven days, because the first day is the day that the game is happening for the next seven days in real time, they can't give information to the other players in the roster. So they can't write in the log, in the public log. They can't talk about things in the public log, right? Because technically speaking, they're still on the mission, okay? And that's how you keep track of time. Yeah, where I've seen this done successfully is um, in months, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially... Uh, when I was in college, I was engaging with some, some different mud communities, not deeply, but enough to know this is roughly how they right. played. Yeah. You were what's called off grid, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for however long. And sometimes that was until they could get back together to finish the adventure, but sometimes right. it was you need to be off grid for this many days, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? right? And so I, you know, other than a mud, I, cannot imagine yeah. actually doing this it just doesn't suit like my lifestyle at all right so if you run the west marches the exact way that they're saying to run it this would work perfectly right 
because every mission is one session. You always go back to town at the end of the session and you're just tracking how many days in game time that it would have taken for that group to go out and complete that mission and come back. And meanwhile, if you play, if it took them 12 days, right, in, in game, if it took that party 12 days, when you play the next week and only five days have passed, any of the PCs that are on that first mission cannot be in the mission the next week because they're still technically on the first mission. And anything sure. they learned hasn't returned back to town yet, so they can't use anything they've learned to, to bring it to the next mission or plan the next mission or whatever. That next mission has to be somewhere else or doing with something else, Right. Um, and you track time that way and it works if everybody buys into it and everybody knows, okay, well, my PC was out on that mission for two weeks. So I can't post in the log in the public log, right. In the lore log, whatever we're going to call it for, for 14 days. Cause they were out for two weeks, but my other PCs can go on other missions the next week during that week's game if I want to. Right. And um, then those people are gone for two weeks while they're gone. They've been gone a week. The se- the first team comes back and now yeah. they start adding. This is why that law, them taking the log book becomes problematic, right? Sure. If you're, if you're, that's why I said that about, if you're doing it this way, that's part of the reason they're saying that the log book stays at home because otherwise you can't get a true chronological thing because it's hard to keep track of it. Well, I mean, you could, but oh, it's hard to I, keep I track you. of, right? Um, but this is fascinating to me. And if I had a stable of players and I really wanted to do this, I could totally see it working and singing like it would be. But again, it really depends on every session that you have. They start in town, they leave, they do their mission, they come back. And you've tracked how long in game time they were gone. And you're noting that on a calendar of some sort so that you can track specific days when specific events occurred. And it really requires a lot of bookkeeping on the DM's part. Because you're the one that's responsible for making sure that there's no weird chronological inconsistencies in what's happening, right? Um, Because you can't necessarily expect the players to know exactly everything, right? They they might know, oh, yeah, we were on that mission for eight days, so I can't really post until the 20th. Right. Like that, that's fine. But in terms of what lore is learned and what happened during that session and everything that's going on, the DM is still the lore keeper in a lot of respects. And the DM has the hardest job in a West Marches game. Um, but I could totally see this working. I would love this. This would be great. There was a time a long, long time ago when we played like this, where it wasn't as it wasn't so constrained, but basically if if a, a week passed in real time, a week passed in game time, right? Sure. Even if the party was still out like near a dungeon, right? Like, and then we would start the next session and be like, okay, what have you been doing for the past six days? Well, you've been healing up because remember back then yeah. you only healed like one hit point a day. So, <laughs> right? right. So that was, that was just part of the game. And that's part of why that worked, right? Is that there would be long stretches of time maybe where you didn't like days passed and you're, party wasn't doing anything but it was easy to keep track of time and what month it is and what the weather should be like and all that because days pass in the game in the setting the same as they pass in real life and that's easy because we intrinsically understand oh another day has gone by right that's easy to get so i love this guy it's a great idea i don't know that i could pull it off nowadays Boy, when i was younger i sure could but now i don't know oh like when i was in college yeah, maybe, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, you know, treating a 
uh, a whole Discord channel or server as it's sort of a mud. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. probably get away with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Sure. Just uh, I've kicked your character down to off grid. Right. You know, you, you can't talk in the channel for right however long. Yep. You know, you're not being punished. You're just off grid. Right. You're literally your PC is not in the building, so you can't be part of the conversation. Right. right. Yeah. 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 No, I, that would totally work. And a, and a and a like a uh, an almost asynchronous sort of out of game set of conversations would happen, which would be you know just wonderful. Of course, that can happen even if you don't keep strict time like that. But that yep. might be one of the offshoots. Is well, you know, for six days your characters haven't said anything to each other because the last time we played was six days ago. What have you been doing all this time? Like you can actually motivate them maybe to have. It actually also gives some gravitas to the downtime activities, right? Yeah. Like, what are they actually doing during that six days? Just literally sitting on their butts. Not they're not consuming anything. They're not drinking anything. They're not. They're just in stasis. Like that's not what happens. Right. right? So anyway. Um. So <laughs> it's eleven twenty. <1120. laughs> yeah. I mean, this is in some ways the most important appendix. And right. that's, I think, why it's first. And that's because it is literal, gameable material you will use or you will right. use as a as a sort of um, format for you to make your own in terms of some of the uh, the, the feats and, and whatnot. Um, I mean, Appendix 2, step-by-step examples, is, is great. We don't have a lot to say about it. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, talking it, it, you through it, this, this right. micro setting is right. not going to be like, right, right. fascinating listening but, it's a good read right and and in terms of that it literally when it says you know step by step, it literally is saying okay so now we're rolling on this table and we roll a eight and that comes up as this and here's how we're putting it into that everything that we've already rolled previously right yeah and okay now it's time to roll this and oh well we could do the climate determination here but we're deciding not to and here's our reasoning for why we didn't do it right here and then here's some you know advice on how big to make a region and here's advice on how you know how challenging to make a region and here is how to set up a new encounter table and so we're going to do it for you to show you how we used the information we learned from the dice rolls and then from our own you know creative energies to create this sort of setup yeah there's not a lot to say about it other than they're literally showing you how they're using the tables and the information provided to create uh, something i do like the fact that their Swamp Encounters D12 table has four uncollapsed waveforms, right? Of just, hey, we don't know what we want for this yet, but probably something like this. Right. And they're, the, they're placeholders even for placeholders. Right. Uh, and the text previous to it says why they're not really sure, right? And so yeah. it really is, a tr- and you know, I love a good worked example in a, in a book. Absolutely. Right? And it really is a, a good, I'm not saying that the result that they get is like, oh, this is the best thing that anybody could ever create. No, no, no. What I'm saying is the way that they're going about it and showing you how they get to their end result is so instructive and helpful. Right. Right. It, it's This is a very show your work thought process kind of appendix. Right. Um and I think it's incredibly helpful to just show where they stop work mm-hmm. and stop drilling right. down and move on and then right. come back later. Yeah. yeah like yeah. we've now done enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Like you wouldn't know where that was just from reading the earlier chapter. Right. 
Right. Yeah. You might get the erroneous idea that you're supposed to create the entire West marches, all the regions first, and then all the factions, and then all the weather, and then all yeah. the like, and that's not, you don't really go in that order. Yeah. Right. You you do you do you make breaks in there and you address other things because to make a full complete region, you need all that other stuff too, a little bit, but not all of it, not entire, not in its entirety. So you can't develop it. It's more like a jigsaw puzzle coming together, everything's intertwined, less of here's a piece of paper and I'm stacking another piece of paper on top of it. And now the next piece of paper comes like that's a very sort of linear. Here's how this is stacking up. Instead, it's more like, well, I've got this puzzle piece and that attaches to this puzzle piece and that attaches to this third one. But over here, there's a whole set of other information and pieces that don't really attach to those yet. But I still need to know something about them because they're going to apply eventually to this. So let's talk about those real quick. Right. right? It's more like a Kanban board than waterfall is what we're trying to say. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and just as all the other text in the book, it also has some sidebars and it talks about, you know, literally they're saying, here's what we're doing and here's why we did it. Here's why we made this choice. And now, okay, let's elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, um, and I think I mentioned, you know, so, so they start uh, doing uh, an example region, right? And then they they move on and they do, they develop an example faction, okay? And then they move on and they uh, do an example dungeon, um, and I, I believe uh, I mentioned, and then they they like put hazards and whatnot. And I, I believe I mentioned that I wasn't super happy with the example dungeon uh, that they produced here in in their in their appendix when we were talking about the dungeon section because it basically violates a lot of the advice they gave and a lot of the kind of rules that they gave about how to make an interesting dungeon. Yeah. Um, but I get why they did it. They're just trying to do something small enough to be able to be an example that fits on a couple of pages. Like I, I get it. I, I'm not, I'm not hitting them too hard on this, but um, I want you to recognize folks that they're, they're just doing it as an example. And that means that when you do your own, it could, it can be a lot more elaborate or it's, you know, keep going back to their previous advice and saying, okay, well, did I have more than one entrance? And did I have, mm-hmm. you know, more than one level? And do I have these other features that make it interesting you know, other than the loot or other than the main boss, like how is this working? And, um, and they talk about some of that in here, but um, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I think their region example is much better structured in terms of the advice they're giving. Whereas by the time they get to the dungeon, it's like, okay, roll on this, roll on this. All right, here, do this. (laughs) You know, Um, Um, like I personally find their, their bit on treasure rooms here, especially easy to appreciate. mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Once I started doing a lot of like dungeon stocking for that session a couple of weeks ago that I mentioned in the previous episode, right. uh, thinking about, okay, I would like to include treasure rooms that the players might have been stumble across, but they've got to do something to be allowed in because it's sort of extra defended mm-hmm. uh, was really at the top of my mind. And, you know, it's explained, but a worked example is awfully nice for that particular conceit, I think. Yeah. And they follow that up, that treasure room little section with possible dungeon outcomes. Yep. And I love how they do this, I mean, actually. Th- this is actually top flight. Yeah. I, I really appreciate yeah. having five different mm-hmm. uh, outcomes that they've planned for. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they're, it's, 
It's just well, really well done. So I actually forgive them the transgression of not having a great dungeon example <laughs> because that next page with this outcomes and with the treasure room information is really good. It, yeah, it's it's this required. Is, this, is reading. this is this is like this is what's going to make your dungeon. Even if the actual dungeon you created was kind of so-so, like their example, this thing here is like oh. Right. Oh, that's why it's cool. Oh, okay. yeah. Th there's a lot of okay, but what does that mean? Right. That you could still have yeah, as yeah. A, a a reasonable and engaged reader mm -hmm. in the earlier chapters. Right. Yeah. And boy, does this yeah sew that up it. for yeah, me. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and conveniently, the next section is tying it all together. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you know, yeah. So I mean, of course, this page is pretty good too. But it's it's really hard to beat that that possible dungeon outcomes page for, for, for sure. uh, the bang for the buck. That is probably one of the best sessions in the past 10 pages. Um, um, how many of each sidebar, the blue sidebar on is page good. 86 yeah. is, is really important yeah. because they're directly addressing how big should the West marches be? Right. Yep. You need to, your sandbox still needs borders. Right. Right. Um, and you need to have some way to know when, You've created enough. Mm. Like, yeah, and it would be so easy, as we were just saying, to just feel like you were stuck in permanent pre-production right. and you were never actually ready to make this thing happen. Right. And you never run the game. Yeah, they kind of address size when they do the region. They talk about how big should the region be, but they purposefully ignore and how many regions will you have in your West Marches? And how do you know when to stop creating regions? And how big does that make the whole place? And that's right. addressed right here. And it's perfectly placed, though. I, I, it kind of sounds like I'm complaining that they should have put this earlier, but no, because this is the tying it all together, right? This means you're taking into account all the things you just created, the dungeons, the factions, the region, all the climate changes, all the encounter tables, all that stuff is being taken into account here. It's not just how many regions are in your West marches. Yep. So it, this, that's good. Yeah. Uh, then uh, appendix three is the same thing, but for you know, a particular group of uh, villainish NPCs, yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a powerful, a power group, basically. Yeah, in the region. Uh, yeah. and this is the uh, the sisters gaunt. It's a coven of witches. They have other attendant NPCs. Um, mm -hmm. Like that's perfectly wonderful. They have a a small dungeon. Um, mm -hmm. Again, yeah, base, nice stuff basically. here. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the interactions of the NPCs winds up really nice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and I, I was I want to specifically point out the type of dungeon that they have created here is very different from the previous dungeon example. And I appreciate that because I think that, um, you know, it's good to see more than one style or type of something that, you know, is part of this. So it's good to see two work examples there. Yep. Um, the minions. I like that the yep. minions aren't just... Um, you know, other humanoids or servants. It's like Mr. Lurk, the giant alligator. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, that's, that's cool. I like that. Right. Um, Hortensius the toad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, and then there's some really nice tables for services from the sisters. This is cool. Right. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, this is what makes them a power group rather than just a generic faction. Right. And it's also gives you a lot of ways to uh, want things from them other than their heads on spikes. Right. 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 Yeah. It makes them useful in the West marches, not as a target just for your crossbow, but f- as, okay, they're actually able to do something for us, even though getting them to provide that service for us is very dangerous and it's going to cost us. And that in itself is a great interaction, right? Yep. Great interaction. Um, and, you know, um, just uh, our mission is to go ask the sisters gaunt some questions is a, a mission type. I wouldn't expect, but it's mm-hmm. actually great. And right. uh, could be a whole lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Next up after that is dishes <laughs> yes. of all things. Yeah, things things that they have being prepared in their stew pot cauldrons. Yeah. And this was all um, Kickstarter stretch goal content. Right. Yeah. That, uh, you know, they just kind of gave themselves permission to get weird with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. sort of lovely. And so, you know, basically it's also kind of a crafting thing a little bit because it gives rules for if a PC wants to try to create or cook one of these dishes, um, how to, how to go about getting a recipe from, from one of the sisters. Um, and then, uh, you know, how to, how to see how well you cooked it and, you know, uh, how much food it's going to provide and things like that. And, and so these dishes aren't just like, oh, we made, you know, hag macaroons. No, it's like, um, uh, 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 hearty hash, which gives you a plus two constitution, right? It makes you yeah. tough. Uh, and so there is a, there is a, a, a presumably a, it's, it's kind of like a, a consumable magic item, right? It works for a particular amount of time, right? Um, there is uh, infernal delight, which lets you always know a lie when it, when you hear it, right? Um, uh, unless it's spoken by a true fiend, by the way. So uh, uh, dollop of grace, which gives you plus two to dexterity. It makes you more lithe, more agile, and a good deal better at reaching under the bed when you lose your spectacles, right? So these are, in other words, things that, oh, the sisters cook up for themselves to use every once in a while because they're having whatever ailment or whatever issue uh, or whatever problem. And, um, you know, they have um, ingredients like troll hands, a flail snail flail, and crocodile hide. Right or uh, an elongated skull of an astral person, uh, phase spider legs, and some uh, various leafy green vegetables. Um, Knoll ears, a homunculus eyes, and a few pounds of flesh taken from a shepherd. Any kind of person with a flock will do, but shepherds are leaner than clergy, <laughs> right? So, I mean, these are not nice things to cook, right? This isn't like, oh, I'm making a nice beef stew that's going to feed the whole town. No, you're getting a particular type of mechanical benefit for a particular amount of time. And you got to cook some troll hands and some, you know, nasty eyeballs. And yeah, it's pretty yeah. I will just say in 5e, um, a cooked dish that grants plus two to a stat is not super okay um, in terms of in terms of fitting into the way the rules run mm-hmm, right like it's just it's just contrary to style right. um the well, game so, really doesn't like seeing ability scores jump all over the place yeah but so you know, during session so the so the thing it gets cooked right you have to cook it right 
and it uh, it lasts for eight hours. Yeah, it, it, it has right. to be consumed within an hour from the time it was done. So you can't like have it in a pot and just store it somewhere, or have it in a bowl, or carry it in your mess kit. You have yep. to cook it fresh and then consume it, and then it only lasts for eight hours. So you're talking about one mission, right? I mean, I mean, if that, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, you know, some of these ingredients, blue dragon scales, the wood from a tree that has been struck by lightning and fresh shrimp, like, you know, I yeah, mean, where you're getting some of this in the West yeah. marches, I th- couldn't begin to guess. Right, right, right. Um, um, anyway. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's, it's but, interesting. It's interesting to me, not because I would necessarily use these because honestly, I probably wouldn't, but just because it's trying to show some creativity with what you can do with the services or abilities of a particular powerful set of individuals in a, in a West March's campaign that isn't necessarily a target or a main kind of villain, right? Like often we think about powerful NPCs in a campaign as, oh, well, those are either our powerful friends that just don't have time to deal with this problem. And they're asking us, you know, they're being our patron to send us on a quest, or they are uh, the powerful villains that the villainous group or whatever that we're trying to take down. Like that's, there's often a bimodal kind of thought process. And what this is showing us that I appreciate is there is this, this faction here, this this set of, I mean, they are villains. They're not nice, you know, they're, they're a coven of hags, but they can provide services that might be useful and not just once, but over a long haul, right? So, yeah. you know, I think that's really interesting. I, I appreciate that they gave us that as one of their examples, for sure. Um, Appendix four is a collection of 20 magic items. Um, mm-hmm. They are... Uh, light touch on lore because, of course, they don't know anything about what setting you're going to right. have. But um, they're, they're pretty cool all the same. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, um, they're good. Um, you know. uh, there's a, a very deeply unsubtle uh, Dark Souls reference in item 11, uh, Morgan's Big Hat. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's played Dark Souls understands this is a Big Hat Logan reference. Um, yep. That's okay. what they're doing. Cool. Um, but, you know, I, I like a good magic item collection as much as anybody. So mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going through each item and judging its like individual merits because sure. yeah, uh, you don't note, need to do that on air. Yeah. So note that in these magic. So this Morgan's big hat, Morgan Gaunt is one of the hag sisters, right? She's one uh-huh. of the coven hags. So, you know, it says prized accessory of Morgan Gaunt, right? So uh-huh. it's not as if, right. Like this is something that's just going to be handed out like candy, right, to the yeah. PCs, right? So, so uh, while they don't, while they don't sort of, while they have kind of a generic feel to them, they're also trying to still show you examples of something you could have in your West Marches if you start putting something like this all together, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Appendix five, crafting materials, <laughs> is uh, you know, obviously right up my street. Uh, mm-hmm. interesting that uh, also today uh, Arcadia issue uh, number 16 came out where mm-hmm. they did the same thing, right? It's, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're absolutely playing in the same field. Mm-hmm. Uh, some overlap materials, some non-overlap, uh, right? But mm-hmm. a, a lot of the same like thought process right. of... Um, you know, just 
baseline improvement to the items. Um, making this work well is hard because it is extra powers. Right. 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 Uh, so I, I'm not sort of passing blanket judgment uh, for or against this uh, in relation to uh, its power. Just it's an interesting and difficult thing to try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this is sort of, th- this is the type of thing where if you want to have something that is, kind of a cool, interesting thing that's in your, in your West Marches setting that is not a typical thing from other settings, right? Uh, then this is the place to put it, right? Like you make it a crafting material, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it's, it's nice. Some of these are really interesting. Some of them are ho-hum, you know? Right. I mean, I'm always going to be a fan of seeing Oracalcum in games. I, sure. I always just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, my kids are enough into uh, uh, Minecraft right now that yep, of course there's obsidian. How could there not be? Right, That's high course. blast resistance. That's what I know. <laughs> right, the number right. of speeches yeah. my ear has given me on the high blast resistance of obsidian <laughs> is a little excessive, but right. delightful. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, unless you have anything else to say, no, about I don't. These, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm good. Um, like the only kind of factor into the crafting rules. Right. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, they don't really, right. It's just interesting types of materials you could have in your setting. That's all. Yeah. Uh, Appendix six OSR conversion. Take it away, Sam. <laughs> uh, well, so this section is going to give you some information on. You know, if you're not using fifth edition D&D, how could you, you know, adjust to the things that are in this book into your OSR game, whether you're playing basic D&D or old school essentials or swords and wizardry or castles and crusades, or if you're playing first edition D&D or second edition or whatever, whatever you're playing, if it's part of the OSR, you know who you are. Um, and basically this is saying, look, you know, we use a lot of five isms because this book was written for fifth edition, but here's how you're going to use these, this terminology in your OSR game. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's okay. You know, it's whatever, (laughs) you know, um, Uh, right. Because it's because they're trying to cover a bunch of different rule sets. Right. And they're not really specifically covering any. Yeah. Right. They're not really specifically covering any of them. And it's general advice for this is yeah. a common kind of thing in OSR right. games. Right. Maybe think about this. Mm. Right. So, for example, player characters in fifth edition tend to have quite a lot of HP relative to their OSR counterparts. Even weak characters will still be about earning about five hit points per level. Strong characters might well earn 10 hit points or more per level. Because of this, fifth edition characters can take quite a beating and still survive. And that means that you find the damage quantities from hazards and other dangers that are on the tables we're providing you here might be higher than what you are 
you know, what you should be using. So therefore adjust them down. That's basically what they're saying there. Yep. Um, and about modifiers for abilities and difficulty classes, you know, it's basically telling you, you need to look at the OSR game that you're playing and look at how the ability scores and, and how, if, if there's any kind of task resolution that, that deals with the ability scores, how that is affected. And there's a little bit of mathematics and, you know, uh, they talk about saving throws being different in fifth edition and how much you can carry mattering and all that. I mean, it's, it's fine. Um, if you don't know fifth, so here's my conundrum with this section. If you don't know fifth edition, but you play OSR style games, Mm -hmm. um, or if you, if you play fifth edition on hard mode, well, then you would know fifth edition. So if you don't know fifth edition, you probably didn't pick up this book because it says it's for fifth edition. And I mean, probably, and, and if you don't know fifth edition, if you, if you, and if you were reading through this book, you're probably already either already thinking about all these things like, oh, well, saves don't work that way in, you know, basic d and I'm playing BX, okay? They don't, sure. Saves don't work, you know. Um, and you've already sort of probably made those conversions in your mind on the fly. So this section isn't all that helpful, um, you know, uh, but for someone who maybe plays fifth edition, but is kind of OSR curious, maybe. Right. And they're wondering if, or maybe they have a friend who plays OSR. Maybe they're friends with Sam Dillon and they say, Sam, why do you love Castles and Crusades so much? Or why are you still playing first edition D&D or BX? And you're wondering this kind of Fine gives question. A, yeah, this kind of gives you an, a, a, an eyeball into the changes that would have to be made and gives you kind of a framework for how that would change what the game is doing, right? Anyway, so so this section of the book, um, I mean, it's it's okay. It's decent. I'm not sure yeah. it's needed because I think the people uh, who needed this needed it before. They, I'm not sure they would have gotten to this part, right? I think that's a, a pretty fair point. Um, like, honestly, as much as anything, like, this is for you if you were not good at just doing it in your head as you're reading. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it, it, it's for you, like when you were just getting started, but we're also still playing fifth edition in, right. um, I don't know, 1847 or whenever you started gaming. <laughs> Before the invention of dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so. No, I get um, it. And, and they even address it like in the sidebar, it says basically, look, you know, you can be a fifth edition player and be interested maybe in finding out how the OSR would run these things. And so here's what you do. Like, yeah. I, I get that, you know. Right. And, like, there's nothing wrong with just wanting to talk about how to have a gritty experience mm-hmm. right. In, right. in any game. Yep. Um, but so Appendix 7, Conditions and Exhaustion, straight up reprint from the right. Player's Handbook. Moving on. Yep. Uh, like th- this page exists to help explain conditions to OSR players who came right. across this book. Yeah, yeah. I, exactly. You know, I wonder if they were if they just knew they had uh, an existing OSR install base. Yeah. Uh, in their Kickstarter. Yeah. Because Could West be. marches. Yeah. And they yeah. wanted to do them a solid. Right. But and they already knew yeah. the people existed. Yeah, yeah, and that's fine. And that and that's why I say you know nothing that that section says that that previous appendix the conversion section is yeah. bad. It's not incorrect. Yeah, There's no, nothing in there that's bad advice. It's just it's just very short and it's not extremely helpful to me. Um, but again, I'm a person who's played. Every oh, edition, yeah. I've run every edition. 
I find the good in every edition and the bad in every edition. And I'm extremely open-minded. I've played all kinds of different games. I'm not alone in that. Like I'm not the only, I'm not some kind of magical unicorn. Okay. And right. so for the people who are very much like me, this section and eh, whatever it's, it's a, it's a wasted couple of pages and same with the, the conditions and exhaustion, like whatever. It's nice to have it on one page actually, you know, sure. but you know, okay, whatever. Um, and then appendix eight is just a reprint of all the tables from all of the previous sections. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's perfectly nice to yep. have them in one place for all of mm -hmm. your just, I have a fistful of dice and I need something pretty fast. Let's go. Right. Uh, and then, but then it has some extra stuff. So uh, it has several pages of the same, of the same um, uh, tables and including the, the gaunt coven tables uh, of their services and the discovery table. And then it has player details and it has that table about why you're leaving, right. About why yep. you're going to the West marches, why you're leaving the empire. And then it has tables. Um, for different classes. Yeah. And, and th this bit of, uh, like it's just sort of stage business. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, but it's kind of intriguing as yeah, it's a, a it's just a personal thing. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like, um, for example, um, it's it's sort of it's what do like, you do around camp? Right. It's like prompts for downtime, almost like not like not downtime in town necessarily, but like, uh, for example, the cleric. It's a d6 table, and here here are the activities. Uh, ponder the most recent passage of scripture that you've read and ask someone for help with your study when you get stuck. Okay. That's something you would do where you're in a place where there are other people of your same faith. Okay. The next one is offer up some simple prayers of safety and well-being for the night. Okay. You could do that for anyone. Uh, the next one is leave a symbol of your deity, a cairn of stones, for example. Okay. So you're leaving, you're going back to town at the end of a mission. You leave that. Right. Um, so it's not really meant to be a table where you're, you're like, I don't know what my character's doing in camp. Let me roll this D six. Like that's not what it is, but it's more of a, Hey, here's some sort of weird tables where you might find ideas about what you could be doing. Right. Not just in the traveling or adventuring section. Right. Um, you know, the monk is find the best spot nearby for meditation and invite someone to meditate with you or challenge another party member uh, to a foot race. Be sure to blindfold yourself so that you have a fair competition. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, it's so, interesting. It's kind of, a, I, I feel like this was like a stretch goal thing where they just, you know, gave some activity tables and. Yeah. yeah. And like, I don't know. It's kind of nice. It's not the very most on point, but their layout, Probably didn't have space for right. uh, actually giving this page to something else. Right, like, layout's complicated. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. th then there's you know pages of names. Right. Because you're gonna name a lot of stuff, guys. Yep. Yep. Uh, a lot, a lot of stuff. Yep. Dungeon names, faction names, town names, coastline names, desert names, forest names, grassland, hills, mountains, swamps, wastelands, underground, tundra, urban names. And then the it's, next it's page, great. generic lore. Yeah, yeah. Those those name, naming things are great it, because you don't necessarily have to use it, but it's great inspiration, right? Yep. Like, yeah. Yep. And it, and it's like, um, you know, like, uh, and it's they're not like single tables. So, for example, the urban names, right, is a descriptor. It's a D10 table with a descriptor, and then a D10 table for the environment, right? 
So yep. you might roll a uh, uh, lamplit village or a uh, cinder ring of cinders, right? Or you know, um, underground you might roll a uh, an igneous grotto, right? Or an umbral cavern, right? So yep. it's like this combination thing. So you get more than just the ten, and then you get generic lore. This is actually pretty genius. This is good. Uh, so this is this is real good content. This is tables. So uh, I'll just explain to you, like, for example, the first table, ancient beings is the name of the table. So there's the first part of it is a D10. It's for this being was known for. And the next half of the table, the next third of the table is a D10 also, but then was, and then it's some descriptor. And then the last third is, and thus now is. So for example, if I roll a four, the ancient being was known for splicing beasts together to make monsters. And if I roll again, let's say I roll a seven and it's, but then was tricked by a lowly mortal. And if I roll a third time, let's say I roll a two and then, and thus is now locked in an underworld prison. Right. So it gives you kind of this ancient being lore, like, you know, and Again, a lot of it could just be for inspiration, but a lot of it is just real. like literally you could just say, well, here's this creature that was known for this thing, got tricked by a mortal. And and now you've got these wheels turning in your head about, okay, who was the mortal? How did they trick this creature? How is it imprisoned? How is it going to set free? Is there a cult that's trying to let it free? And, you know, like it just wheels within wheels, right? You yes. just Now you're talking about everything. And that's just one of the tables. There's also apocalyptic cataclysms, uh, mythical sites, significant artifacts facts legendary events faction leaders wandering strangers um yeah. and all of these have that three column kind of format where it's okay it, it was this and then there was this other thing in fact legendary events has four columns right this is yep. brilliant this, so this it's stuff is great it's 220 table entries on two pages mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of all those different categories and columns it's yeah. like th that is some brutal thankless writing i say from yeah. long experience yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but really nice when someone else has done it for you. So thanks for this thankless yeah. writing. This thing right here could be a two-page PDF sold on DriveThruRPG for five bucks. Yeah, I agree by with that. itself. And, you know, I mean, it'd be worth it. Uh, and then the next page after that is six columns of titles <laughs> and epithets. <laughs> yes. What's up? Yeah, so generate titles for epic characters from this table by rolling 3d6 and reading the values from left to right. So, yep. uh, you know, and yep. it has literally, you know, six columns of, you know, yeah. The satirist, the trickster, the unthroned, the virulent, the sweat dripper, <laughs> the old guard, horse-faced, fish stealer, the broken one, you know, things like that, right? Yep, that's good stuff. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, there's a part of me that um, really enjoyed, uh, you know, old English class in college and Beowulf class in college <laughs> and yeah. just thinks, now translate this into old English and you're really <laughs> off right, to the races because right, right. these are just Kennings, guys. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Because Walks Upon the Moors is, you know, Grendel. Right. 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 Yeah. Or Grendel just, Gun Gun. you know, flip that around more Walker and then translate it into a different language. 
yep. translate more into Latin and Walker into Spanish. And now you've got something that sounds, you know, <laughs> bastardized and weird, but, you know, change a couple letters. And now you've got this name of this creature that you can say in ancient times meant more Walker. And it has now, you know, been, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to sort of mess with that, that kind yep. of language. So it's really good stuff. Uh, so that is the the last of the real content. The book concludes with Kickstarter backers and open gaming license and a one page mm-hmm. index. Yep. Job done. We did it. Yeah. That's and, is there anything already in the West marches. And, and so nine episodes, I think it's worth it. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure there's enough time for extensive final thoughts, but do you have a couple of sentences you would like to, uh, to say? Uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty simple. Um, the PDF is about available for $15. The hardcover uh, premium color book is $51 and 70 cents on drive through RPG. You probably want one of those. Yeah. I, it, I, I really hope you've enjoyed this series. And if you don't already own a copy of this book, it's a phenomenal purchase. Um, I, I do not receive any remuneration from this opinion. I just genuinely love this book. Yeah. And, and I do too. And I, and I, you know, even if you're not going to run a West marches game, so there's, there's a couple of things here, right? You can buy this book in, in order to learn what a West marches game would be like and to learn and run one and set one up. Right. Okay, fine. You can also buy this book and learn the concepts and learn how to do it and then tweak them and change them in a way that matches better with your personal style and what your what your players personal styles are. You know yourself and your table better than anybody. Right. And so you can tweak some of these ideas and use them in, in a way that fits you. Or you can just simply read this book and use it as an inspiration for how do I make travel and regional differences a little more interesting in my game? Because the discovery and exploration aspect of fifth edition is the one that gets the least amount of, 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 you know, of, of, of notice, basically combat material support, right? Yeah. Combat gets a lot. Social stuff gets a lot because those are also really important parts of the game. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but the exploration and discovery part kind of gets, it gets short shrift. And if you want to know how you might do something to make it better in your game or to make it more important or how you might need to change that ranger's ability of never getting lost, right? This is the book for you. This is the book for you. I highly recommend it, even if you're not really going to run a West Marches game. Yep. I agree with every word of that. Um, one of these days, I think that a, a deeper investigation of what we mean by exploration is is worth doing sure. because I think in the end, almost any kind of learning anything winds up being exploration. Um yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we're a little better at investigation scenes than uh, we really give credit for because of indexical storytelling. Sure. I, I think this book, one of the things that highlights maybe, maybe this is where the, the break is in understanding or the, the break in, uh, like, I agree with what you're saying, but uh, I think what this book highlights is that even the smallest finding of information is exploration and discovery 
And I think exploration and discovery as a pillar of the game gets thought of as, oh, it's only when there's a huge journey and you learn a ton of information from the vast library where you've checked out 200 books and now you, you know, your sage, you know, your sage background comes in handy because you now you can read all those books. Like that's, yes, that would be exploration and discovery, but that's not really what everybody's doing, right? That's not really where everybody's focus is that even the smallest learning of the smallest bit of lore and how to make that important in your game, I think is what this book is trying to show. And that's what ends up making exploration and discovery just as important as the other two pillars. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think we're better than often we give credit for specifically me. Cause I, I mean, I mean, I'm the one that just said, look, it gets short shrift in publications and whatnot, but that's because it's just not mentioned. Oh, well, you find whatever. Well, that's not mentioned as here's your exploration pillar because that just doesn't, right. you know, you don't necessarily need to do that. So, but yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. We're probably better at it than what we give credit for in a lot of cases. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, speaking just to personal experience, um, I recently wrote a dungeon for my own use. I wrote a dungeon for um, something that, uh, Ian World is releasing uh, not that long ago. I wrote a dungeon for the Adventurers League, and before that, I wrote a dungeon for Game to Keep Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking really actively and writing them about you know how people were using these rooms and you know what stories I was telling with how they use them, and all the things you're going to come across just for stepping in the room. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, right. Uh, Exploration actually happens in a very meaningful way just for getting the text at the entry to the room. Right. Um, You know, I think that uh, when people say there's no exploration in 5e or in D&D or whatever, they're expecting a lot of dice rolling mechanics to drive it. But a long time ago, they decided uh, it isn't interesting to find out whether or not you can walk up the top of that hill. Right. So we're not going to put dice rolls on it. Right. Or in a lot of cases, even uh, go in six second or one minute or 10 minute rounds. You just, mm-hmm. you just go do it. It's fine. We then move to, you've done it. Job done. Um, <laughs> and like exploration still happened. So, I think uh, the idea that something is only accomplished when um, a die roll resolves tension is a, a little bit of a misleading expectation. There's plenty of things you can learn without rolling a die because you just absorb and think about the things you didn't need to roll perception to observe in a room. None of us want to be in the place where uh, every part of a room's description is tiered by uh, perception results. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I'm sorry, you rolled a zero on perception. I'm not telling you anything about the room (laughs) at all. Right. You're not aware of a room. It's funny as a joke, but Mm -hmm. an actual misery at the table. Right. Right. So, yeah. So that that's that's just that's my my bit on exploration and uh, 
there needs to be more, but it's not as bad as people often want to say. Right. It's not absent. It's just that it doesn't get highlighted. Right. This book provides um, lots of different ways to make it get highlighted, specifically in the journey and learning things about the world around you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we could be doing a lot more to teach good dungeon design mm-hmm. to really help you realize you've explored something now. Right. And you have profited from that exploration. Right. I mean, uh, since I've been giving regular updates on Two of Annihilation on air, uh, <laughs> last night, well, we beat the Atropole and we uh, beat Sararak enough to make him leave. Nice. Turns out he has no solution for a spell you cast before he shows up. <laughs> Telekinesis right. is an incredible way to murder a Sararak. <laughs> nice. Nice. What he doesn't do well is strength checks. So we lucked into a lot of really perfect strategies. He's he's a lich. His his muscles are atrophied. Give him a break. He's <laughs> 13 strength. I'm very clear on this now. <laughs> it came up a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap this up. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com. My personal blog is Brenda Stoddard. My Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. I'd love your support. How about you, Sam? I can be found on Twitter at DM Samuel and on RPGMusings.com and, of course, here on Edition Wars. <laughs> <laughs>